Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. I'm in my radio studio, and I've got uh, two great interviews for you today. I'm really looking forward to presenting uh, new conversations. First up with Brad Meltzer. Brad is back talking about the House of Secrets, not the old DC horror anthology. We are talking about his new novel with Todd Goldberg. It introduces a new adventure character for them, a female protagonist, a history hunter, who not only is checking out mysteries of uh, the strange relationship between George Washington and Benedict Arnold, but also some uh, mysteries about her own life. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that when we talk to Brad in part one. We also, of course, talk comic books and uh, TV as well. Brad, of course, uh, you know from the History Channel and shows like Decoded and Lost History. Best known, of course, to Word Balloon listeners for his wonderful comic book work on Justice League and uh, Green Arrow and Identity Crisis and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So uh, it's great to catch up with Brad in part one of today's Word Balloon. Part two, we are talking to comics historian Bill Shelley. Bill Shelley is part of comic book history. He is part of that original group of fandom that uh, put on and attended those uh, comic book conventions back in the 60s. Bill was an attendee of uh, those, but uh, had his own fanzine. And uh, we talk about uh, the way uh, fans communicated back then in the uh, pre-internet world, back when uh, you were uh, putting your fanzine in in an envelope and sending it out to you know, 100 people if you were lucky or whatever, but they were making their own comics and also doing essays on uh, different creators that they really liked. Uh, Bill then uh, started doing uh, essays for magazines like Alter Ego and, uh, you know, has written uh, biographies of Joe Kubert, Harvey Kurtzman. In fact, that Kurtzman biography is up for an Eisner nomination this year. But today, mostly we're talking about his book on Otto Binder. Who is Otto Bender? Otto Bender is an important man in the uh, mythos of Captain Marvel and uh, Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr., the Shazam family, the Marvel family, uh, for Fawcett Comics back in the 40s. Bill wrote an incredible amount of uh, comic books featuring uh, Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, who he co-created, Captain Marvel Jr., uh, and the Marvel family. Then he went on to DC Comics, and man, the stuff he created for the Superman family— How about Supergirl herself and Argo City and her whole backstory, the Legion of Superheroes, the bottled city of Kandor, um, the first bizarro comic book story in Superboy. In fact, he wrote a lot of the early Superboy stories. Um, Then he graduates to Superman and continues to add to the mythos. Really interesting career. Way before all of his comic book stuff, uh, Binder was a pulp writer and created the character Adam Link who was one of those first uh, sentient robot characters. In fact, uh, originally the story I, Robot, uh, which I always thought was an Isaac Asimov short story. There's a book of a collection of Asimov stories called I, Robot, but the actual story itself, that came from Otto Bender. And it was uh, adapted for Showtime and an excellent uh, uh, Outer Limits episode in the 90s. The original Outer Limits series had an iRobot story. And, of course, the Will Smith uh, movie from the early 2000s, all based on an Otto Bender story. Great career, very interesting life, and happy to get into it with uh, Bill Shelley about the life and times of Otto Bender in part two of today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support monetarily through subscriptions via Patreon. If you want to help uh, the cause at Word Balloon, when you think about it um, at Word Balloon, I try to give you at least uh, 10 to 12 hours a month of uh, great uh, comic book content that you can't find anywhere else. I I, uh, say this with uh, pride because of the guests that I'm able to get and the conversations we're able to have. And uh, when you think about it and you're spending, you know, four bucks on a comic book, 
Can you spare a dollar or two and subscribe to Word Balloon? If you can afford it, that's great. I could sure use the help. I'm trying to expand this thing into a full-time gig, and I can only do it with your guys' help. So uh, if, you, if you would and you're interested, uh, go to uh, wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad. It'll give you more information of what I'm trying to do and accomplish with Word Balloon. And if you can help, that's terrific. So thank you for your support, the League of Word Balloon listeners. All right, let's get things started and uh, welcome Brad Meltzer back to Word Balloon. It's great to talk to Brad and uh, get the lowdown on his new book, The House of Secrets. But we talk comics and TV and a whole lot more. It's great to have Brad back and uh, always a fun conversation. Brad Meltzer joins us again on Word Balloon. I am so glad he's back and I'm very proud of him because I saw on his uh, on his cheat sheet here. I'm looking for it where you're uh, part of the top 25 most powerful authors in Hollywood. It's Brad Meltzer. Welcome back, Brad. Yeah, except that, you know, you're also talking about a, a land called Hollywood where, you know, the author is like the lowest rung in the ladder. So you're basically the, the, the 25 most powerful people with no power. So I'm not sure what that gets you. <laughs> you are all over the place. I am enjoying your Facebook videos along with uh, the usual kind of blasts of, hey, Brad's got a new book coming out, House of Secrets. Everybody look for House of Secrets. And here we are. <laughs> Yeah, here we are. This is great, Matt. Now, you're, you co-wrote this with Todd Goldberg. Um, tell me about the decision to co-write and how you guys got together. Yeah, I mean, the truth was it was, it was just a matter of time um, and my own personal time, in which is I have these stories. It's like everyone who knows me knows I would love to do more comics but physically can't do it because I'm just committed to doing my own thrillers plus the kids' books that I do with Chris Eliopoulos. Mm-hmm. And I had this story. I've had this story for five years that I wanted to do. And someone said recently, a couple of years ago, that, you know, eventually if you don't do a good idea, someone else will do it. Because good ideas, they, they go out into the ether. They exist. And when I got to about year four, I was like, you know what, this idea is going to just be done by someone else. and It's really going to upset me. So I might as well try and do it. And um, rather than going and trying to find, you know, some writer that you never heard of and trying to just churn out a book, I did the exact opposite and said, I'm going to hire an award-winning literary writer, um, someone who's just strength is character, someone who can do better than what I think I can do myself. And the goal would be to write a book that neither of us could write alone, but that would be better than what we could do. And, you know, Todd has just lived up to all the hype. He is just an incredible character writer. You know, we just are, you know, the early reviews are obviously in now. And so we're, you know, we're seeing groundbreaking new female protagonists. This is the best first chapter I ever read. Someone just put on, I mean, and uh, it just blows me away. But it really is a testament to Todd and I kind of took like this Lennon McCarthy thing where we were like, McCartney thing, like McCarthy, like that. There's my history showing. Um, <laughs> John Lennon but and you. It's like yes. Lennon McCartney thing where we were just basically trying to top each other, and we literally would write chapters, and then I would write back and write over it, and then he, you know, like, and we, and I really feel like it gave us this character that is just, you know, like no other character we created. As someone uh, said, she's. Uh, she is Jason Bourne with a vibrator, which I think is no better blurb you could ever ask for on your book. <laughs> I saw that. That's fantastic. Yes. Hazel Nash is the new character. And uh, she's got a father, Jack Nash, who I, I see a little Brad Meltzer in this uh, character. And I also see a little Roy Raymond TV detective, if I can uh, put my Silver Age uh, knowledge to use. Yeah, no, I like Roy Raymond. I mean, yeah, and this is where it starts. I mean, uh, Hazel Nash, when she's six years old, her father teaches her and tells her mysteries need to be solved. And when he would put her to bed, he hosted this 
very popular conspiracy TV show. And so he would tell her these gruesome tales, like the story of revolutionary times where a body is found, and they cut open the body in the autopsy, and inside the body cavity, there's a Bible that belonged to Benedict Arnold. <laughs> and as chapter, and she loves these things, and as chapter one opens, Hazel has grown up now. She's 30 years old. She's in the hospital. There's been an accident, and they tell her her father's dead. And right after that, an FBI agent comes into the room and explains that her father's been murdered, and the last person that was seen with him, they found the body of this guy. And when they cut open his body, she says they found a Bible that belonged to Benedict Arnold in his chest. And he's like, how did you know that? And she realizes in that moment that all the stories her father told her as a little girl they were all real. Wow. And she has memory loss now, so she has to figure out where did the scars on her forehead come from, where the guns in her apartment, were they hers? She's actually the mystery. She has to figure out who she is. She has to figure out who killed her father. She has to figure out where her memories failed her and what they really are. And she's the true house of secrets. And that's where the book begins. That's outstanding, man. Very, very cool. Is this the start of a new series? I mean, you know, is this the hope? Yeah, no, our goal is, is you know, listen, if you're going to have Jason Bourne, you know, a female Jason Bourne with a vibrator, then, you know, like Jason Bourne, she's going to have our goal always from the start was to build a character strong enough that she could carry a series. And Hazel is like a character we've never written before. And, and I remember when Todd and I were going back and forth with it, there was a line, it's right there in chapter one where it says when Hazel was a little girl, she burned her thumb on the stove, but she's the kind of girl who would come back the next day and burn her other thumb just to see how it compared. <laughs> and when we had that line, we were like, here's the character. We know who she is. And, and what is really fun about her is she has no memory. She loses her emotional memories, which means that she forgets the people she knows. She knows the facts in her brain, but the people that she knows, the people that were part of her life that she cared about are all gone. So she can walk into a bar and she could meet someone. She doesn't know if they're the greatest enemy or her biggest, you know, or a great lover. And the result is, is as she's looking and as she's searching these things out, she's finding that she wasn't really a great person. And we love the idea that imagine if you came to and you, got a, you get a second chance at life and you can be someone new. And especially when you were someone who wasn't really that great. And that's the fun of Hazel is to really peel her and let her slowly reveal herself to us. And she's rewriting herself in the process because she'll find out these terrible things and hopefully yeah, make herself and have a better to figure person. out, you know, is that what, I, you know, as she says in the book, like, you know, do I just live my life and do whatever I do? Am I going to just wind up in the same place I was because I'm always going to be the same person I was? Or can we actually change? Can we actually improve? Can we actually be something better than who we were? And that's the, still the question for her. And as in most uh, Brad Meltzer novels, we, we learn hard history as well as, uh, you know, the fun fiction that we get to follow. And as you started to say, you know, there's there's the thing about uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, wallet being found in the dead man. Um, yeah, no, well, this one, this one we went hardcore. You know, one of my the story that I've had for, you know, half a decade now that I've been carrying around with me, and this is a true story that in, in the final moments when Benedict Arnold is revealed as a traitor and George Washington finally finds out is one of the wildest emotional moments in American history. And what happens is, is George Washington is so devastated that his friend has betrayed him. They say it's one of the only moments anyone sees George Washington cry. And Alexander Hamilton famously delivers a letter to George Washington from Benedict Arnold, and the letter asks for three things. Benedict Arnold says, one, don't kill my wife. She didn't know that I was a traitor. Two, she says, he says, don't kill the people I work with. They didn't know I was a traitor. And he says, three, can you also please send back my baggage, my luggage, and my books? <laughs> And it's the craziest moment in history, right? And the wildest part, John, is that George Washington does it. 
he actually sends them back. I mean, this is a guy who just put a knife in his back. He's the most hated man since Judas himself. Yes. And he says, yeah, yeah, you know, don't worry, I'll send you your stuff back. It makes no logical sense. Washington spends the rest of the war trying to hunt and kill Benedict Arnold, but you're telling me he just gives him his stuff back without going through it, tearing it apart, checking to see for invisible ink, anything else? And I became obsessed with that. What, and to this day, nobody knows what was in those, the content of things that George Washington sent back to Benedict Arnold. And as for what I think is in that luggage, um, you'll see my theory in the House of Secrets. Outstanding. That's fantastic. How long after uh, the Revolutionary War did, did Arnold live? Because honestly, and I'm sure you appreciate this, I, most of my Benedict Arnold knowledge came from that Brady Bunch episode, of course, when Peter plays Benedict Arnold. And Benedict fact, Arnold, one of the greatest. I was just quoting the other day that all my, all my, like, that's how I knew about, like, Joe Namath. That's how I knew about UFOs. Like, everything came from the Brady Bunch. Like, Hawaiian curses. Everything I know is based off of some old Brady Bunch episode. And, and for, for younger listeners, that was our Save by the Bell. So cut us some slack. All right, man? Yes, for sure. Showing our old age. Um, but, you know, the funny part was, is Benedict Arnold, like, went on, you know, he thought he was going to be a hero. I betrayed America. Like, this, you know, I'm on your side now. And they, everyone was like, screw you. You were an ass. Wow. Like, because no one likes someone who switches sides. Sure. Like, it's just like today, right? Like, you think you're going to be a hero when you see some Democrat become a Republican or a Republican <laughs> become a Democrat. Well, all that happens is both sides hate you because no one can trust you. So he winds up going to England. He winds up, I think, dining, I think it was in Canada, although his body's back in England. Um, and he just never, ever gets what he wants. And as it says, you know, I think when I started this process, I used to think, you know, Benedict Arnold's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. That's what he is. Like, in comic book terms, he's the big bad. And what I realize is that he's a complicated guy. Sure. And like anyone else, we're all complicated, yeah, especially when we do something that we regret. You know, I, I got to know uh, Bud Schulberg, uh, the screenwriter and novelist, before he passed away. And it's very easy for people to give a knee-jerk uh, reaction to him and say, well, you know, he named names during the McCarthy period. What a terrible thing. And like you said, complicated guy. And and it's like, no, obviously, I, I wish he hadn't done it. But, you know, there was more to the guy than that. And it's so – isn't it always the case that it's the moments after their historic – uh, period that are the most fascinating. You you did that for me with Meriwether Lewis, and uh, you're you're decoded about Lewis and Clark and what happened to Meriwether Lewis. Is it right, Meriwether? Yeah. Saying... No, that, no, that's Meriwether Lewis. Yeah, okay. no. I mean, the guy basically they they think you know he's he's passing secret codes with Thomas Jefferson. Um, and they say he killed himself. And then when you actually look at the bodies of what happened, he has a shot in his head and a shot in his heart. Now. You don't have to be an expert in, in, you know, CSI to understand that if you shoot yourself in the head or in the heart with guns back then, you had to repack all the gunpowder, like put it all in, put the bullet in, cock back the gun and do it again. I don't care who you are. If you take a shot in the heart, you don't have anything to be able to take that shot in the head. And if you take the shot in the head, you certainly ain't repacking everything to do it in the heart, which tells you one thing. This is not a suicide, right? And anyone with a logical brain knows, you know what, something smells here. It's just physically impossible to shoot yourself twice with those old guns. And, um, and, when we, and to me, I love finding those old stories. So, yeah, no, I, I forget even how we got to the tangent, but... but Benedict Arnold was uh, never ever gets never ever gets to kind of eat his golden ring as he thinks he's going to. Do you go into like possible motivations of why do we know why he we betrayed? Him oh yeah, you're gonna. Say, I mean, you'll okay, see cool. in the book. 
Um, and it's not based on anything that I made up. It's based on reality. You know, Attaboy. one of the really fun parts is um, while I was researching the book, is we found out that there are people that the United States government works with that we think of our enemies, but they're not. They're on our side. And that's an amazing revelation. I won't ruin the House of Secrets, but it's an amazing thing that someone taught me and I used in the book. Um, and, and, of course, I use my own life. I mean, this is a book that's about a guy who hosts a TV conspiracy show. And so when it comes to the research, you know what I call that? That's called my life. Um, and, and I used it because, you know, people tell me secrets, for good or for bad. I've had, president, I've had a president invite me to eat lunch privately at the White House. I've had senators tell me things. I've had, you know, the family of John Wilkes Booth through their lawyer uh, through their lawyer said to me that they wanted me to hear about how their relative really killed Abraham Lincoln, and it wasn't how everyone thought. Wow. And when you hear these stories, people are telling me for one reason, because I have a television show, because I was on television. They'll still <laughs> offer things that they wouldn't otherwise offer. And I realized, you know what? I can go to places where no one else can go for that stupidly dumb reason that people want to talk to someone on television. And as a result, I'm a perfect spy. I can go and talk to presidents. I can go and talk to world leaders. I can go and talk to all these people just because I got a show. And that became, I was like, wait, there's a really good thriller plot and conspiracy plot in there. That's awesome, man. Well, you know, and also, I mean, you learned all the uh, secret handshakes of the Freemasons, and they accept you. That was well before the TV show, Brad, right? Yeah, no, I mean, you know what? I met them long ago. Yeah, that was before the TV show. And, and I've been very lucky in my career that people, you know, I think, I think the more truth you put out there, the more truth comes finds you, and and also the more bullshit finds you too. I mean, sure. but to be fair, because you know there are people who still try and bring me the holy grail to my book events. Um, <laughs> I'm not even joking. That. Like that's the fact. That. Uh, Absolutely. I think I told you that story you once did. before, but um, but the but the reality is is that I think people appreciate when you're you know we all have the Library of Alexandria in our pockets on a daily basis now. We carry it on our phones. Yep. Um, but the hardest thing to find today is the truth. Yes. And I think, and, and I think we also forget that you know one of the things I was obsessed with with this book was the, there's an industry of conspiracy now. You know, it used to be the conspiracies like comic books were like a fringe thing yes. that people kind of there were small groups and no one really knew who they were or liked these things, and we all did our own thing. We were the, you know, we were those people who just read comics in the corner, and conspiracy people printed out their pamphlets and no one cared about them. And now comics have taken over the world, and so have conspiracies. And now they're not a fringe thing. Now they're a mainstream thing. And so there is a true industry of conspiracy that hey, you know, look at the, who's running for president. I mean, Donald Trump is uses conspiracies as part of his campaign. And those things, and the reason it happens is, you know, it's worth, we need to, as a people, examine and pull it apart and, and figure out how this industry of conspiracy works. And I was really determined because these stories are told and manufactured and fed to us. And, and so we will, you know, it, it, for a reason and for, you know, with, with clear purpose now. And I think it's worth stopping and saying, what, what, what are we actually eating here? I hear you, man. And, you know, I, I was telling you off the phone, I've been pursuing a, a conspiracy story for, for a TV thing that I'm doing later on for the History Channel. And it is so hard to find, like you say, the hard truth, because you read some of these books by reputable people, but then you look at their sources and they are, you know, sourcing other conspiracy theories, theory books. So it becomes kind of circular and you don't get to any hard facts. And there's one piece of this puzzle that's driving me crazy. And it's because I can't get any hard evidence on this this one story that I heard 
involving a, a JFK uh, a conspiracy theory. And it's right, and then, you know, we say in the book, one of the things in House of Secrets, you know, and full credit to Todd, because I love this line, he said, you know, when you're in the industry of, of conspiracies, the audience demands that every once in a while you've got to crack one. You've got to find the answer. Mm-hmm. And there's a real pressure for that for people, right? You can't just go out there and just say, oh, they're out to get you again. Um, and it's just fascinating, and it's fascinating. And the thing is, we're all just trying to, you know, just find the truth. That's all. And 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 it, sadly, it, it, you know, for some, it becomes a game. For me, it's just obviously always been my passion, and I love telling these stories. But it's fascinating to watch um, the manipulation that other people will go through to keep the game going for their audience. You know, you we've talked about this before. But uh, it, it's fair to, to to mention as well your involvement in the Red Cell program with the government. And if you wouldn't, yeah, mind just no, for a and, and we yeah. should talk about that again. I know, I know, we did speak about it before, but you know, uh, obviously, a lot of this was born there. Is when I got called in from the Department of Homeland Security, they asked me to come brainstorm different ways that terrorists could attack us. And we've spoken before about like you know what we did and all that, and that's all fine. But uh, what was fascinating to me is I you know you have to stop and think and say what a really smart way for the government to get information from its citizens. And you know what, it still works, right? It worked on me. I came in gladly and happily went in. And that's what you know in the House of Secrets, that's what you know Jack Nash is doing is he's working for the government. He's using his cover as a TV show conspiracy host and doing stuff and helping the government. And you know what? If I told you I was doing that right now, John, you wouldn't bat an eye. No. And, and, and right now you're asking yourself, am I really still doing that? Um, and to me, that's a great character. That's a really, really great character. Absolutely, man. No, this is, this is fantastic. I'm uh, very excited for this one. I think this is a cool start to a new series. And also great to see a strong woman character. Well, and she's kind of on her path, so uh, we'll see how strong, and I'm sure she'll, she's up to the task, but that is certainly the journey that she's on right now, finding her strength. Yeah, no, and, I, and I, you know what? I mean, I think that there's obviously, uh, listen, I have my own daughter, and I want my daughter to be able to see these strong female characters that are out there. Um, and, and I think we owe it to our audience to acknowledge, you know, we can't just have James Bond always run around as James Bond or Jason Bourne or whoever it is. And, and the sad thing was when I looked at, at the names and I said to myself, okay, listen, we have Jason Bourne and you have James Bond and you have Jack Reacher and you have all these names. They were always guys. And I was like, okay, there's Elizabeth Salander, right? There's a girl with the dragon tattoo. Yes. And then I was like, wow, you know, like it, it really runs dry really quickly. Um, and, you know, I just feel like, and, and listen, there are definitely others that I'm not naming right now, but I was like, you know what, let's see if we can build another, let's see if we can yeah. build someone like, unlike anything before. And, and in Hazel, um, I really, you know, I think because she doesn't know who she is, she doesn't know what she's capable of. Um, I think, you know, we found something that makes it really exciting from a, a standpoint of storytelling. Have you encountered a real life Hazel Nash? Um, you know, in a strange way. The process of writing with Todd, we were both each other's Hazel because we each have a part of ourselves that the other one doesn't know. But here we are working together and we're trying to figure out what each of the other is capable of. So I was right, you know, in a strange way, I feel like, you know, Todd could really go at my beliefs about conspiracies and rip them apart in certain ways. And I can go at his belief in people. And, you know, he, he jokingly said, and I think he's totally right, he's like, the reason that this book worked is he, he said, that Todd believes, uh, you know, I believe in the good of people. I believe that people will do right. And Todd believes that people will murder you if they have a chance. 
Um, and it's in, it's in the two completely opposite views of the universe that we found Hazel, because one, is her, one of us is her old view and one of us is her new view. And so it lets this character have these kind of two sides. I mean, she really is like this female two-face where she can really, you know, look at her old self and look at her new self and, and constantly say, which am I? And I think we're all, we're all multiple people, every one of us. That's very cool, man. I like it. I, uh, I, I look forward to finishing it. I haven't finished it yet. And also, I'm kind of bummed you're not coming to Chicago for the book tour, but I want to give you a chance to maybe uh, tell, you, tell people what cities you're going to be at. Yeah, so we start in New York, um, and then we go in the first week, we go New York, Virginia, um, Atlanta, Orlando, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Sunday, we have Vero Beach, Florida. And then the following week, on the 16th and 17th, we do Los Angeles on the 16th of June and uh, San Diego, make it to San Diego on the 17th, uh, which is a Friday, and then I get to take a nap. <laughs> right before Comic-Con you're coming in, which is smart. I am coming in right before Comic-Con when all will be calm. It's true, absolutely. And go to bradmeltzer.com for uh, more details or net? Yeah, you can go to bradmeltzer.com. You can okay. go to find me at Brad Meltzer on Twitter or, of course, on Facebook where we always are hanging around. Excellent. And I wanted to get into some nerd stuff with the remaining time, if it's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. DC Rebirth, your thoughts? Uh, listen, Jeff is one of my oldest friends in this industry. I love him. Um, and, you know, I... I you know, I loved hearing about it. I love knowing it. I love uh, everything he does with it. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that I believe, even from identity crisis days, is anyone who knows me and, and when it comes to comics is I just firmly believe in uh, a, a history with these characters where there's an intimacy, where there's hope, where there's love for each other. Um, and some people may say, well, identity crisis has murder in it or whatever else, but it's like the, the whole book revolves and only exists because of the rich history that these characters and the love that these characters have for each other. So I'm, uh, I'm just totally 100% behind what Jeff did in, in Rebirth 1. I know what, you know, we're coming up, and I think, you know, I'm excited to see, of course, a lot of the books. Um, can't wait to see Tom King do Batman. I'm Atta really boy. excited for that. Yes, indeed. Um, you he know, was just on right before uh, your appearance on Word Balloon talking about. Yeah, I, you know, I read, I, I knew, I had read uh, Sheriffs of Babylon, and, and and I was like, and I said, this is this is there's something really special. And then I read Vision, and when I read Vision, I, I blurred Vision immediately because I was like, this book is fantastic. Amen. This is a book that if you're not reading, you need to be reading. And um, and Marvel reached out and said, hey, can we use that as a blurb? And I, I, re I don't blurb any comics. I, you know, I just really don't do that. Um, I have to feel really passionate about it before I put my name on it. And I was sure. like, I, I strongly stand behind that. So I was thrilled to see when DC picked them up for Batman. I completely um, agree. Yeah. Very excited for that. Tell me, all right, but there's one elephant in the room, and, it, you know, uh, he's blue and sometimes his schlong is out. And uh, what do you think of the Watchmen connection to Rebirth? Uh, I loved it. I, you know what? I mean, it makes – I can't – well, there are things I know, and there are th – and, and okay. people I spoke – you know, like, I, I, I think it's great. I think it's awesome. I think it's, it totally makes complete and utter sense to me. And Because, you know, what would you, be, what, what would you be happy to? Lex Luthor did it to everybody? You know that this was dark side again. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't time. know. I'm not knowing right? where the like, story's to me, going. Like, now yeah. we're in new a new area. I, I think that that's there's something really cool there, and that makes logical sense to me. I understand, um, but you know, you know that's me. I like it. No, and you know, again, I'm I'm willing to see the story out. I, I was telling people the same thing when everyone was up in arms over Captain America Hail Hydra last week. 
And it's yeah, just like, you know, I to me, like again, up in arms is such a. I'm kind of done with up in arms. I feel like you know we are. <laughs> Everyone relax, you know. It's like, you know, I I think like, you know, Twitter memes and and internet memes, like, it can be ridiculously awful and mean, but sometimes they're dead on right. And I saw one recently that was like, you know, comics are too violent today. They were much better when we were younger in the 90s. And in the background of that was like the death of Robin. It was, you know, like Watchmen and, and, you know, a rape in there. It was, you know, all the things that like all the, don't forget, we're an industry where we are constantly trying to murder each other, right? Every comic book is filled with someone trying to murder someone else. Sure. And we just don't want to acknowledge that all that violence is there because we, you know, we hide behind, you know, the great hope and the great, you know, the great characters that, that support that and fight against it. Um, but to me, I, I, I'm, you know, let the story tell out, see if you like it. If you don't, then say your piece. But to me, you know, give give everyone a chance. I mean, I can tell you right now. You know why I reacted? I was you know, what I reacted. I was like, oh, the guy who's writing Ant Man, which is one of my favorite books, is yeah, now writing Captain America. I'm in. You know, <laughs> it's the same thing like Squirrel Girl. One of my favorite Marvel books is Squirrel Girl right now. Like, I, whatever you want to do, you want to change something around. I'm going to at least give it a chance, and I'm yeah. going to read it, and then I'll make a decision. No, I agree, and and really, sh- I should take my own advice regarding uh, Watchmen invading the DC universe. Maybe that's the case. Yeah, as well. I mean, listen, you can. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, um, and everyone's entitled to have you know their own view on how things should be. But don't think for one second that these arguments are are new. You know, they will True. exist, and they will continue to exist. And what I love is that you know. Ten years from now or one year from now, there's some kid who's going to come in and trash everything that, you know, I worked on or that Jeff worked on or that anyone else worked on and is going to say, screw all this. My Green Lantern is Kyle Rayner. You know? Yeah. I love that. That's how comics are meant to be. Like the old plows over the new, plows over the old, plows over the new, over and over all the time. And that's the beauty of the tapestry. It's, it sounds like, based on everything you're saying, Rihanna, too, as much passion you have for some of the new stuff going on, that there isn't some comic story that is, you know, kind of bursting in you and, you're, you know, need, demands your attention and needs to get out of you. Is yeah, it? I mean, I still, listen, I still write Justice League in my head okay. like, regularly. I still write, you know, I just do because it's my book. It's the book I love. Sure, it's the man. book I, you know, I, I, I wanted to sound that book for like I just physically have the time, but I felt like I could have stayed on that book for years. I um, but it's just you know I have to have I have this other job. Um, but to me, I think that you know I, I just want a good story, and I think like anything else, and any time in comics, and it'll always be true. There's going to be some comics you love, there's going to be some comics you hate, there's going to be some comics that you're going to get all up in arms about, and there's going to be some comics that you're like, you know what, that was really really special, and I never saw it coming. And that's you know what that's called, that's art. That's what art in every medium is, and that's how television is, and that's how movies are. Uh, you know, maybe you know, X percent of it is going to be crap, and X percent of it is going to be gold. And our job is to always just find the gold. And if you read Southern Bastards, you find the gold. And if you read, um, you know, Vision, you find the gold. And if you read, you know, all, the Fix I just read, which was really good, like, you know, yes. the gold is out there. You're killing me, man. These are good recommendations. Absolutely, I'm glad you're saying this stuff. Now regarding. Uh, the TV side of superheroes, I'm surprised. Now, you know, you've got your television fiction history in Jack and Bobby. You've certainly done great nonfiction television. You've got, done great comics. You've done great fiction. Is there ever going to be a chance or an opportunity that you'd like to pursue to write on one of these uh, existing uh, superhero TV shows, whether they're for Warners or for, uh, you know, Marvel or Netflix or whatever? You know, I... 
I, I think it's just a matter of finding the right time um, is really it. I mean, I know, listen, you know, someone should eventually do a story. I was just telling someone, uh, you know, the Jack and Bobby, when we were on Jack and Bobby all mm-hmm. those years ago, um, you know, that was the best geek room of a show that had nothing to do with superheroes. But, you know, it was Greg Berlanti, it was Mark Guggenheim, who, you know, obviously both of them are all, on, you know, all on CW, all those shows. Yeah. It was Michael Green. Michael Green was in the writer's room with us, which was, who's doing, you know, Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Like, it was a, gr- it was a room. We were just nerds happy. <laughs> um, and I remember downstairs was Jeff, uh, Jeff Loeb was downstairs working on Smallville, so we used to meet him for lunch. Hilarious. And it was just, a, it was a really good time to kind of, and, but the golden age of, of superheroes on television didn't exist yet. Right. So, I mean, yes, I, you know, these are my, you know, these are my friends. Like I talked to Guggenheim. I, I love these guys. Um, and, but it's just, a, for me, it's a matter of function of finding time. Okay. You know, so, I mean, you you obviously are happy with Arrow. I mean, you know, as a great Green Arrow writer yourself and stuff, are you enjoying it? Yeah, listen, and and because I love Mark, and I know where Mark's going, I know Wendy, because Wendy's one of my dearest friends. I mean, these are these are we love them, and so, and and I love you know my youngest one. um, What is you know his favorite show is Flash, and so I get to watch Flash with him, and you know explain to him like the you know when they say Earth three, I'm like actually he's from Earth two, and and I'm I'm like wait, I'm having an Earth two or Earth three conversation with my youngest kid who's like loving this. And I was like, if you told me, if I went in a time machine and I said, I'm going to have a conversation about who Jay Garrick is with my youngest son. And and we're not talking about comics. We're talking about a television show. And then I have to explain like what Earth 3 is and what Earth S is. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, I, it it makes me so happy to see that exist. I'm with you, man. Um, That, you know, can, can you, can you bitch about moments here and there and whatever else you want? Sure you can, but don't let it ruin your fun. Because there's really, there's really good stuff out there right now. And and again, our job is to find it. Couldn't not agree more. And I agree with you, man. No, it's a lot of, I, I get it at work. I don't have children. So it's always the coworkers like, Okay, Jay Garrick, ex- explain this to me. And- right, I, I love you know, and, and like when, when when you know when you see a Legion flight ring, yes, like I'm like okay, everybody just calm the f down right now. Like you know, this is I have a Legion flight ring in my desk drawer along with a Legion ID card. I still have you know, mine like too, I can man. Hold my- yeah. And, and, you know, the fact that we exist in a world where we're pausing our television shows so we can spot Legion flight rings, like, the universe is okay right now. That's awesome. I did the same thing. I was watching the episode with a friend, and I immediately, like, rushed to my uh, bookcase. I'm like, see, I've got one, too. Yeah, no, sure. No, that's how you find us nerds. You're killing me, man. That's awesome. Well, dude. Yeah, have you seen, by the way, have you no, seen Chris yeah. Eliopoulos do the Legion of Superheroes, his his renditions? No, I want to. Please. That's oh, they're spectacular. Oh, I'm going to bug so, Chris. So our is from so Chris, if you, yes. for those who at least know the kids' books that we do, who's done you know I'm Amelia Earhart and I have Abraham Lincoln for us. He's done like all these Legion of Superheroes uh, images, and they are you should find them because it's I I think I've retweeted a couple of them on my own Instagram, but they're on Chris's Instagram. They're spectacular. Oh, okay. He and he started by doing them for a friend who was putting together a Legion piece, and then he did one for me privately of one of you know. Uh, my favorite Legionnaires, and then he started doing more and more and more, and it's just, it's super, super fun. Who are your favorite Legionnaires? Uh, Timberwolf, Wildfire, I still love Telus. I, th- I think that, Tellus. I think that the, I think Block Wildfire Block. is like the greatest relationship, you know, buddy relationship in comics. Like, they're permanent lovers in my head. I don't care about Light Last or anything else. <laughs> like, that, that relationship is spectacular <laughs> to me. Um, I, I, you know, I, I have a thing for, you no, know, those, those characters, you know, are just, 
there's a lot of them. I mean, Legion is one of my favorite passions. I, so. Dude, I, yeah, I know. Me, you, and John. So that's that's the thing, man. Whenever else was going crazy about the X Men, we're like reading all the Legion shit. Going, no, I was amazing. Legion. No, you I was Legion. I, yeah, X Men. I, and listen, I loved X Men. I loved that. But like, to me, it was Titans and it was Legion, and that was it. Like, I, you know, I still feel like you know anyone wants to challenge me on home planets of Legionnaires, let me know, bring on the battle. <laughs> You know, like I will, you know, I will go to, you know, from wherever you want to go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, and and so to watch Chris do them, it's just like opening up my childhood memory banks and just, you know, giving me beautiful rainbows and unicorns. And that's a, by the way, the <laughs> that's a great place that they put Legion in Rebirth and everything with Satin Girl in the 20th century. And yeah, no, the that ring was fun. And, oh, absolutely, man. No, you know, I, whether it's Levitz or Mike Grell and anyone who's ever been on the Legion, Giffen, I'm always like, I, I miss you on the Legion, man. And it was so great. That was one of the few cool things about the new 52 was you had Levitz back on the Legion and nobody cared except for me, you and Johns. But it was like, oh, look, it's the Legion being the Legion again. Yay. <laughs> oh no! So let me tell you something. When I first when I first started doing Green Arrow, they brought me into DC Comics headquarters. It was my first time there, and I was trying to be cool, like I'm not freaking out and having a heart attack because I'm working on the books that I grew up on. And, and they say we would like you to meet Paul Levitt, you know, who was the publisher, the big Kahuna himself. So they take me to Paul's office, and I go into the office, and I'm, you know, and he's asking me about novel writing and about the state of publishing as it exists today. And I'm, you know, putting on this like, you know, very serious face. And I'm at last about like three minutes, at which point I go, can I just tell you that the great darkness saga is one of the greatest stories of all time? And I just was like, I don't care. I may never come back here and no one may ever read my comic again, but I'm sitting with Paul Levitz and I'm going to tell him every nerdy thing I know about the Legion of Superheroes in this one moment. And he immediately is like, oh, we just to read, you know, he gave me a copy of it that they were just reprinting with this great new pullout thing in the back. And I'm like, so happy. And I think to myself, I've just made a complete ass of myself in front of one of my heroes. And then, because I'm a Legion nerd, I'm reading one of the Legion fan sites because I read them. And there's an interview with Paul Levitz, because they do this extensive interview with Paul Levitz a couple years ago. And what's so great is I'm reading this interview, and in the interview he says, you know, it's still amazing to me when people come in. He's like, it was so great. Novelist Brad Meltzer once came into my office, and he literally tells the story from his perspective (laughs) instead of mine. And I was so happy because he was just – it was clear that he appreciated it. And it it was one of the great moments of my nerd life to be able to come face-to-face with that guy who brought me so many amazing stories when I was 13 years old. Uh, and to see that he, you know he actually appreciated that moment, which is as opposed to thinking, "Hey, it's a stalker. Get security. Get him out of here." <laughs> You're a genuine guy, dude. Honestly, and that, and it comes through in your work. And obviously, when we have these conversations, and I think that's why people are happy uh, to hear you back and and doing well and doing great work. Now, you mentioned the IM books. What what uh, children's books are coming up? So yeah, we're doing. Um, where are we? We're doing. Come September is I am George Washington and I am Jane Goodall. Wow, um, which is our first living hero. So we have. It's you know I'll, I'll save it so we can talk about it when it comes out. Yeah, but please. It is yeah. crazy to do someone who's alive. You know. You know. That's just a. That's that's t- intense because you're waiting for you know it's not like you're waiting for whoever's response or some family member's response or some you know grand estate's response you're waiting for like the person who's in the book to respond. Wow! Um, and so we had Jane Goodall read it and it was just a fantastic experience. Um, and then after that, we haven't even announced who's after that because um, we're trying to clear some rights right now. But that okay. actually is basically almost drawn and done. Um, and Chris is actually working on the one after that. And uh, we love doing this series. So we, we, we're going to announce soon that we're going to, you know, of course, we're very excited to say we're going to be doing even more of them. We have we signed up for six more are going to come hopefully very soon. So 
Um, that takes us through book 18, which wow. just is insane to me. Um, but it's really just been this amazing experience because, and I can't tell you how many comic book people share the books with their kids. And that's the really fun thing is like these people who I love their work on comics are like, you know, email and, and tell us like, this is the, this, these are the books that they read with their kids. Cause Chris just kills the art and we get to tell these real stories about Rosa Parks and Abraham Lincoln and Albert Einstein and Martin Luther King Jr. Well, they're fun ways to explain history. And also you pull these great nuggets of stories when they were kids. So it's that much more relatable to them from a subject standpoint. And then Chris's art pushes it over the top because it is, it's fun, dynamic comics. It's great. Plus, we also hide Superman in every single issue, so that's always a fun. Oh my God! I'm gonna have to. All right, I'm gonna have to look through my. Things you didn't even know that, did you? I had no idea. That's fantastic. Oh, there's so much. There is so much stuff that we hide in the backgrounds. <laughs> and God bless Chris. Like Chris will. I think I'm a pretty big nerd. I think I hide my comic stuff in every. You know, I can't believe I'm even disappointed in you that we just did an entire interview on the House of Secrets and you never even mentioned that the House of Secrets was a DC comic. Well, like, I, I was I'm, wondering I mean, about the title, but me, John. Well, you, you know, it was in the back of my head, but then we got another. Yeah, yeah no. Now you could say that. I'm sure you can well, cover. No, no, I was going to say, but, like, did you? No, no, I remember good horror anthology. Did you have to clear through Warner Brothers? Of course, House of Mystery, House of Secrets. So, but my point is, is that you know, I think I'm a pretty good nerd <laughs> at hiding stuff that I hide because I've been hiding stuff in my novels from comics for years. And Chris will like call me up. He's like, "You see what I put in there?" I'm like, "What'd you put in there now?" And you know, I'm in every. You can find. I will tell you. You can find me in every in every uh, book. He's yes. hidden me somewhere, and we hide our kids in there, of course. But there are other things I won't ruin. Superman is one of them. But he he put stuff that I'm like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. He's like, look at this page again. And I sit there like, you know, like like you with a JFK conspiracy picture, <laughs> you know, film. like with a microscope going <laughs> over this thing. And if you knew how much time from our lives goes into keeping ourselves feeling like that we're really cool, it, it's really pathetic, but it's fantastic. That's awesome. Now, House of Secrets, did you have to clear that through Warner Brothers? Because is that a trademark title? or was Listen, it... don't bring that up now because I have no idea. All if right. we did, if we had to, that's too late. <laughs> Um, don't don't run this until it's out on the shelves because we don't need the loss. No, I mean um, the funny part is is obviously I always hide my stuff in the books. This was one where it just happened to work where the title uh, you know happens to be something that fit perfectly and uh, and and there's no better place. I think you know I remember when I was growing up, House of Secrets to me was like this this place of spooky, scary, conspiracy, crazy stories. And so to me, this was the perfect way to start this library. Excellent, man. No, very cool and. Uh... Of course, we are talking It Is Out, so you can get it through Amazon, you can get it through your bookstores, go see Brad on the tour, and pick up a copy and uh, get it autographed directly from the man. But uh, excellent start, dude, you and Todd Goldberg, The House of Secrets, and uh, more IM books to come, and uh, history uh, channel uh, programming in the future? Um, We are talking about, we're hopefully going to do a... Uh, special that's going to be coming up at the end of the year. Wow. Um, so we're talking to them about that right now, which is really fun. And I will also say, because I always get asked it, and people put it on Twitter all the time, um, but anyone who wants to come to any of the signings and bring comic books, there are always people there who bring Justice League or Identity Crisis or Buffy or Green Arrow. Um, obviously, you know, my one thing that I'm so happy that we get to do is to sign those books. You don't have to buy anything. Just come, say hi, tell me what comics you're reading. It's still how I find the best new comics is talking to people who come to the events and rating them for information. Excellent, man. Dude, you're a match. I always appreciate you coming back and uh, talking to Okay, send love. Me. Thanks for always supporting us in all the different mediums and all the different playgrounds we get to play in. It really means more than I can express. Back at you, my and man. And by the way, and one final shout-out to our friend Noah Cutler, the calculator, the real... But can we just also talk a moment on Arrow, that my buddy Noah Cutler, who loves your show and you know listens to all your podcasts... Good IBM, man. Like, absolutely. You know, Go on. 
And so I named, so we named the calculator. I named the calculator after him when we did Identity <laughs> Crisis. And the best part was, is like two episodes ago on, on Arrow, there's like a whole moment where they're basically saying to the calculator, to Noah Cutler on the show, Noah Cutler can't be trusted. I'm like, it's on national television. And I just love, it's so fantastic. Because when you, when he used to be, when you Google yourself, you find stupid crap about yourself. Like when you Google my friend Noah, he's basically a super villain. So like any girl he dates out there or anyone who, employer who wants to know about him, like when they Google him, it has officially happened that he is a super villain first and foremost. And it is just to me, I think I've, I think my, my work is done. That's outstanding, man. I didn't realize that. I didn't put two and two together. Because calculator. Him. He's the calculator. There you go, man. Hilarious. Dude, be well and uh, safe okay, trip on too. the tour. And thanks a lot as always. Thanks, John. Brad Meltzer, The House of Secrets is out this week. Uh, look all over the place at your favorite bookstores or online. And in fact, if you do think about purchasing it online, or even some of Bill Shelley's wonderful books that we're about to get into in our next segment. I hope you will consider, if you go to Amazon to buy your books, to do it through the Word Balloon portal. Uh, All you have to do is go to wordballoon.com. There's an Amazon tab right there. There's a whole bunch of ads on the front page of Word Balloon as well, promoting a lot of uh, my friend's uh, books, including Brad's books. And if you click on one of those ads or the Word Balloon uh, tab as well, it will take you to... Uh, Word Balloon's Amazon portal, and you can shop at Amazon through there, not just books, anything you normally buy at uh, Amazon. And if you make your purchases through the Word Balloon portal, then uh, we get a kickback. I like saying kickback because I'm from Chicago, and in Chicago politics, kickbacks are kind of a way of life. It's how things get done. And uh, that could be applied as well to Word Balloon when you think about it. Uh, It never costs more to uh, shop through the Word Balloon Amazon portal than normal Amazon because it is normal Amazon. It just is like a referral. You know, you're, you're coming to Amazon through Word Balloon, and therefore Amazon's like, oh, that's nice. Hey, Word Balloon, here's a few co- uh, pennies, literally, for uh, each purchase, which add up. And I thank uh, everyone who does their shopping uh, at Amazon through the Word Balloon portal because it really does make a difference. So, you know, whatever you're looking for, if you if you buy clothes, if you buy furniture uh, and books and movies or TV or whatever, if you do your shopping through the Word Balloon portal, uh, we get a kickback from Amazon. So thanks, and it's a great way to support B- Word Balloon while you're doing your normal online shopping. All right, let's move on to uh, segment two and a wonderful conversation with Bill Shelley. It is great to meet Bill and uh, get this information about Otto Binder. Uh, his biography of Binder's is incredible. He's also done uh, great biographies, as I said earlier, about Joe Kubert and Harvey Kurtzman. And, uh, in fact, in a few weeks we'll uh, have Bill back to talk about Harvey Kurtzman uh, because that is an amazing book. I just bought it at Amazon, and uh, it is incredible, and I can't wait to talk more with Bill. He's also one of those original comic book fans, and I love hearing the perspective of guys that are my age and older on on what they think of this world that we all kind of take for granted in terms of there being this 24-hour news cycle for comics. And, uh, you know, not just the the news websites, but even what I do and what some people do with video and just the coverage that comics are able to get globally compared to when Bill was a fan and literally doing his fanzine that he would put in an envelope and have a mailing list and, you know, send out to a few dozen, if not a, a hundred or two fans. And uh, it's interesting to hear what he thinks of today's uh, media world that has exploded uh, with comic books. So it's great to talk to Bill Shelley about Otto Bender. Let me uh, present that conversation to you now on Word Balloon. Man, I am really excited uh, to welcome Bill Shelley to Word Balloon. 
because uh, I've been reading uh, Mr. Shelley's work in uh, Alter Ego magazine and, and some of his, uh, his books about comic fandom. So it's a real pleasure to uh, welcome you here, sir. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. I, uh, I'm thrilled with this uh, Otto Bender book. And right now, it, you know, they sent me a PDF and it's on my Kindle. So give me the title of the book, please. Well, the whole title, and it is rather long, is Otto Binder, The Life and Work of a Comic Book and Science Fiction Visionary. You know, that sums it up, though, because, my God, what a career. I, I was aware that he was a Captain Marvel writer, knew that he was a very important Superman writer. Um, but really, this is, you know, a full biography, his early years, uh, up to uh, the early 70s when he was uh, writing novels and uh, doing uh, do, also doing kind of uh, speculative science, uh, kind of in that vein of chariots of the gods? Well, that's right. Um, he was, um, in the early 60s, he started Space World magazine. And so he was a serious science reporter for a magazine that he owned, um, taking a bit of a break from the comic books. And then he became known as a serious science writer. And then uh, people started contacting him and asking him his opinion of UFOs. And um, he said, well, I, I have never seen one, so I guess I, ha I don't believe one, won't believe in one until I see one. <laughs> but he became more and more interested and finally ultimately wrote a bunch of articles, seminal articles about UFOs in the 60s. He's known as a ufologist uh, just for these early articles. And another interesting kind of side interest of his was um – that ex exploration of uh, – they made a movie about this a couple of years ago called White Noise, but just that, you know, the spirit – you know, kind of contact with the spirit world through just, you know, kind of recording a silent room and just kind of the surface noise, you know, hearing stuff. And I want to say it might have been one of your articles or Mark Evanier. Uh, I'm not really sure. Maybe it was uh, – is it Dick Lupoff is he, or Luptoff or – how do you say it? Lupoff, yeah. Loop, okay, Dick, maybe it was Dick Lupoff or somebody. But I, and, and as I remember from your book, you said you never got to meet him face-to-face, -face, unfortunately. But I know, unfortunately. But, but Mr. Lupoff did, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm not sure if Evan Year did or not. But, yeah, that they were even, like, got to hear him uh, play some of his white noise and be like, hear that? That's the weird part. And, you know, it's that kind of stuff that ghost hunters are kind of looking for today. But he had an interest in that world as well. Well, that's right, because um, he was trying to speak to his brother, who had died relatively young, across the spirit world. And all, also, more importantly, really, was his daughter was killed tragically when she was 14. Yeah. And so he was trying to reach—he became so distraught, he would believe and try to do anything to try to uh, speak to her again if he could, including— um, these uh, re recordings, recording things and playing them, uh, speaking into the tape recorder and then uh, trying to listen back and see if these noises, if they were played backwards or if they were played slowly, sounded like voices. Unbelievable. Yeah, really, really interesting. Honestly, I, I, I bring it up not, not to mock him at all, but really it, I think, probably helped his imagination as well. I mean, you know, again, that was after the fact, and, and certainly after uh, he and his brother were writing. And in fact, uh, we should mention, uh, a lot of people might know his credits as Eando uh, Bender. And, That's right. Uh, at Eno, right? And then it went... Right. It started out with his older brother wanting to be a writer, um, Earl, and then Otto teamed up with him, and they came up with the name E and O. <laughs> and so all of his science fiction writing, um, even after Earl stopped uh, teaming with him was signed Eando because he be that name became very well known. That's awesome. Yeah, he had a, this really long career in pulps or 
Well, I guess, you know, yeah, over 10 years. And it, of course, created a very important character, uh, Adam Link, that um, people might know if they're big Outer Limits fans in particular because they did an adaptation of the iRobot story. And it's funny, I always thought that was a, an Asimov story. Well, I think most people do. They go, well, gee, he must have uh, ripped it off from Asimov. But actually, it was the other way around. Wow. Uh, Otto's story, original Adam Link story about the first uh, sentient robot, uh, was titled iRobot. And later, when Asimov's uh, agent was putting together a collection of his short stories about ro uh, robots, he his agent took that title and slapped it on the book without Asimov realizing it until it was too late and it was in print. Wow. And so um, Asimov went to Bender and said, I'm so sorry about this. I, I don't know what to do. And Bender just said, well, uh, send me a copy and I'll sign it for you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but, but if you think about it, I mean, even the movie with Will Smith, iRobot, um, you know, this is a Bender idea that's, that's floating around now. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, I used to say, what a shame they took Asimov's great story and really made it into a... a you know, just something very different. And it's too bad because, and now obviously I've been corrected, it's Otto Bender's story. But if you go back to that original uh, Outer Limits episode and, in fact, the 90s remake of the original story, both, right. had, both had Leonard Nimoy. He plays a, a news reporter in the first. It's basically a robot that is accused of murder and murdering his creator. Um, it, I guess, as I learned from your book, it covered two uh, pulp stories. And because the first one ended kind of with a cliffhanger where the murder happens and he's on the run. And well, right? actually, you tell me, actually yes, it ended please. up becoming a whole series. Yes, uh, yes. It ended up becoming a series of, I think there's maybe seven or eight of them. Um, and that was, that was actually, it, you know, it's like even today you create something and so people want more. Yeah. And so he, he responded to that and came up with wonderful uh, new twists and turns to the stories, like Put Adam Link on Trial, which is the second story, and then uh, the, uh, the, a scientist invents a mate for Adam called Eve, and <laughs> all these things happen, it's quite interesting, uh, but that was his big claim to fame in, as a science fiction pulp writer, which you're right, he did that for about 10 years, and was, you know, I would say he was in the upper tier, if not one of the most, one of the greatest, he was sort of in the near great category. Understood. Well, you know, and I also appreciated in, in Mr. Lupoff's uh, forward to your book, too, where he said, look, this guy wasn't Shakespeare. He was just an entertaining writer that really knew how to, you know, write fun stories for his audience. And it's well, true, you know. Yeah, he never wanted to be a writer, even. He just started helping his brother. And it turned out he had this facility for it. And um, as a very fertile imagination. And more than anything, he had a sort of an inner childlike quality that he brought this sense of wonder to his stories that made them tremendously appealing. You know, honestly, I appreciate uh, your writing and uh, Mr. Lupoff's writing and Roy Thomas, all the stuff I read in Alter Ego, because you guys give us the real history. Because I, I sometimes find uh, bloggers and podcasters of, of my generation, we all have this amazing respect for you know, these great golden and silver age creators and, and their amazing concepts. But sometimes they really put them up on this pedestal. And it's like, hey, man, these were guys that were grinding it out. And, and mm -hmm. certainly in, in Bender's case, in the pulps, for a quarter of a cent per word or half a cent per word. 
And more like a more like a quarter, okay. <laughs> quarter of, a quarter of a cent. Yeah. And, and then you know you you point out too that one of the reasons why he went into comic books was because of the demand of comics. The pay rate was like you know what three bucks a page or something like that for a much shorter story compared to you know what he had to do to grind out uh, pulp novels and pulp short stories. Well, yeah, he resisted comics at first. His brother became a, um, a comics entrepreneur, bringing artists together to churn out um, pages of artwork for comics. And his, his brother Jack did this for a living and kept asking Otto, hey, get into this, get into this. You can make some good money here. But at first, Otto was skeptical, and he thought the comics were rather shoddy. But then... Um, Comics got better in the early 40s than they were in the late 30s, and the money went up, 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 because the comics were exploding, and at the same time, there was a shortage of good people because of the draft. Absolutely, yes. People were going to war, so they needed people to be able to fill the jobs. And There was a demand, and Otto had bad hearing, so he was um, 4F. And and so he, he couldn't serve, so that's how he served, was he, you know, he... he he did comic books that were read by GIs around the world. Absolutely. No, and, and uh, you know, I, I I can't even remember if I mentioned, you know, certainly the big impact on Superman. But before that, uh, a huge impact on, on the uh, Captain Marvel and the Fawcett line. And even before, well, maybe around the same time, I, I saw a handful of credits on, and you mentioned them in your book, things like uh, Captain America story very early in the Simon and Kirby run in, like, Captain America issue 8 or 9. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes, he wrote. He wrote um, for Fawcett Comics, which is a major comic book publisher, one of the ten majors in the '40s or so. But he wrote for several of the others, including his second biggest client was Timely Comics, or now we call them Marvel Comics. And he wrote uh, a great deal of Captain America and other more of the subsidiary characters. But mm-hmm. he wrote the entire first issue of Young Allies, for example, which was a team comic book. Yeah, that's that was Bucky and a lot of the uh, the sidekicks. Uh, That's right. He wrote the first issue, and that was a like a forty-five page novel, which was wow. quite unusual at that time. Well, that's a big claim to fame, and then also you can argue that Otto Binder wrote or co-wrote uh, the biggest first comic book event, and that's Captain Marvel and the Monster Society of Evil, right? Well, right. I mean, that's the, you, we think of the comic, uh, the the big event comics of the '90s and going forward, but that was certainly an event comic because it was a 25 chapter <laughs> serial that ran for, well, I mean, it ran for a long time. Uh, I'm, I don't remember. You know, sometimes some of those comics were actually published every two weeks. Yep. There was such a demand. Yep. So I, I couldn't say exactly what what, but it was 1943 through 1945, right in there, and uh, it, he created uh, this villain, Mr. Mind who they, he had no idea what the physical reality was going to be for this villain. He was just this name. And then, of course, you're laughing because you know the story. At the end, it turns out that Mr. Mind is really this little tiny worm who happens to be a, a, a criminal genius. That's awesome, man. Yeah, and, you know, he uh, figured into, oh, God, I forget which recent current D- Oh, 52, the weekly DC event from about 10 years ago. Was he in that? Yeah, he was one of the big bads of 52, absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, it was great. And they, of course, you know, had to make him this, like, I think to be in uh, the DC universe, he was a worm. But then if you saw his real, uh, the way he really looked in his own dimension and stuff, he was a giant and everything. And that's okay. Oh, I see. You know, oh, but yeah. yeah, you know, exactly. That's comics. They take stuff and they move it into a different direction. That's all right. That's right. But uh, no, it was. And also, I compared your, a lot of what I read from, from your book and also uh, some of the stuff on Wikipedia. They say that he wrote nearly half 
of uh, the Marvel family, you know, stories in terms of just volume of stories? That's right. He wrote, um, uh, you know, Captain Marvel, and then there was Captain Marvel Jr., and then Otto wrote the original stories with Mary Marvel. Otto didn't create Captain Marvel. He came in about a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. But he wrote, and then then there was also the Marvel family, a comic book by that title. Mm -hmm. And he wrote, he kept records. And he wrote about half of all their stories, uh, which is, you know, um, pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. My God, what a, what a body of work. Just for Fawcett, we haven't gotten to the DC universe and everything he did for the Superman family. Well, right. Just in the 40s, I would say, I, from what I know about the history of comics, he was probably the most prolific writer of comics in the 40s. Wow. More than Stanley, because Stanley was young and didn't get started until really going until a little later. And no, he uh, he's I think he is the most prolific uh, comic book writer of the four years because he wrote tons of comics for like Canadian publishers and things. Oh, that's fantastic! I've just been like kind of discovering uh, that golden age of Canada comics and stuff, and talking to I don't know if you've uh, encountered Hope Nicholson at all. No, I haven't, but I did look a little bit into that area because Otto wrote so much of that stuff in 44, 45. But then after the war, um, that went away. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it was almost because they, they couldn't import American comics during the war. And that kind of gave them, you know, the reason to, to create more of their own. Exactly. Yeah. And it had to do with paper supplies sure. and different things. Um, but you're right. I mean, as far as uh, we haven't talked about D.C., but he actually started with D.C. when he was still at Fawcett. He was writing uh, stories for the be- in the late 40s, like 47, 48. He was writing Tommy Tomorrow. Fantastic. And he was writing uh, backup stories, um, minor characters and backup stories at that time. He didn't do the major ones. But he, he was had been best friends with Mort Weisinger and Julius Schwartz, who were editors at DC. So they said, sure, we'll give you some stuff. But, you know, since you do Captain Marvel, who is our rival, maybe it'd be best if you didn't do Superman. <laughs> and so we'll give you these others. And Otto, of course, was more than happy to do those because they were easier to write. Well, and that was what was interesting. And I was wondering, given the fact that there was the lawsuit going on, between between yeah. uh, uh, national public periodicals that that published Superman and certainly Fawcett that published Captain Marvel, um, yeah, it was. But uh, and again, you you really point out this friendship between Weisinger, J- uh, Julie Schwartz, and Otto Binder, uh, especially in their early years, uh, traveling across the country, meeting other science fiction fans. This is when Weisinger and Schwartz were not only uh, big proponents of science fiction fandom, but also. Um, were uh, agents for sci-fi write, pulp writers to get them gigs, right? Right. I mean, they were the first agents for people like uh, Ray Bradbury, and I think it was called Sol- Solar Sales Agency. Mm-hmm. And um, but Otto um, was didn't he use some? They used uh, got to play some of Otto's stories, but Otto had already other arrangements. Um, but uh, they were best buddies, and they drive across country together and all kinds of things. <laughs> well, and I love the. Information that you had access to because – and I'll let you describe wh- where these resources came from. But you've got a lot of correspondence from Binder to his brother and also to Schwartz and Weisinger, some of these other agents that repped him. And you get this real genuine feel of what it must have been like to be a freelancer in the pulp era. And I, I really found that early stuff as fascinating as the comic book stuff. Well, yeah, because for one thing, he's a very engaging letter writer. And people corresponded back then. Yes. And fortunately, a lot of those letters were saved by 
some of those uh, anal retentive science fiction fans, <laughs> and we know about that as anal retentive comic fans. But anyway, uh, they were saved, and then eventually um, they were uh, uh, put into a uh, special collection at Texas A&M University in their Cushing Library, where I was able to find them, and it was unbelievable to find a stack of 30, 40 letters from Earl to Otto. Wow. And... Uh, uh, and back and different all kinds of letters and correspondence and things like that and of course um i was also able to um talk with julia schwartz who um, also had material that he shared with me including a lot of photographs rare photos that's really cool no there, there really is amazing and you get this real legitimate history of of the pulp era and again this this golden age of comics from the 40s through you know the pre uh pre barry allen flash years I mean, yeah. and, and then certainly they do spill into the Silver Age as well. And uh, my God, his contributions to the Superman mythos. And I'll, I'll let you uh, list a few and I'll, I'll go into detail on, on the ones that I really want to uh, spend time sure. on. But yeah, yeah, go for it. Just give us the uh, give us the laundry list to begin with. Well, I mean, uh, of course, you know, when he went to after Captain Marvel went out of business in 1954, Otto switched right over to DC, and he started working on the Superman mythos because they were trying to develop it beyond what had been done by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and the late 50s, um, and he worked with um, editor Mort Weisinger and. Um, I would say Otto co-created the Legion of Superheroes. He co-created Supergirl. Wow. He's the one that named her Kara. <laughs> he um, he uh, created uh, the, uh, his Superboy Superdog Crypto. He um, uh, he created Lucy Lane, Lois Lane's sister. He added and fleshed out the Superman mythos. Is what he did. He added to. He created Brainiac and the Bottle City of Candor, which was wow. you know Brainiac was a space alien that that stole a, a city from Candor and yep. shrunk it into a bottle, which is, a, as a kid, that's such a that's such a cool thing to think about, a city in a bottle, you know? Absolutely, man. No, I agree with you. You know, uh, in your, was it your forward or was, I can't remember if it was in Mr. Lupoff's forward or in your book where uh, the first issue he, you or he read was that first 80-page giant. Well, that's me because that okay. was a seminal. That was a seminal event in my life because I'd never read a Superman comic before then, and I was eight years old, and I was going on a train trip, and I convinced my father to give me a quarter instead of just a dime to buy a comic book because I wanted that for some reason. And it, six of the was it eight or nine stories were written by Otto Binder in that annual. Wow! So my connection with him goes back to my discovery of comic books, and he he. His stories were what turned me on to comics. You know, man, and and I think about 12 or 15 years later, when I was about eight years old, I was reading one of the last 80-page giants before they became the 100-page spectaculars. Yeah. And, and um, I, I don't know if he wrote the imaginary story of uh, Superman's sons, but I do know I read a lot of early Candor stories, and that's what made me think of it. And I absolutely agree with you. I wish that that collectible bottle city of Candor wasn't as pricey as it is because I'd buy it in a heartbeat. And, I mean, my God, that is absolutely, man. No, just the idea of an entire city in this water cooler sized bottle that had the oxygen on top and everything. It was, oh, it was just great and just a great imagination. Well, to fill in a, just a little bit more about his contributions so you can understand how much he contributed at this time, he wrote the entire first 30 or so issues of Jimmy Olsen yeah. in his own comic. He wrote 
a, st- a story, two or th- at least one or two stories in every issue of Superboy uh, from the time he, he started working on them and uh, in the late 50s. And so he wrote an awful lot. He loved the character of Jimmy Olsen because it probably kind of reminded him of Billy Batson, who was uh, Captain Marvel's secret identity, so to speak. Sure. And, and he loved Superboy because, you know, Otto grew up in a small town that he based Smallville on. I mean, Smallville is based on, in his stories, is based on Randolph, Nebraska, which is where Otto spent his childhood. That's great. And he lived there like a Tom Sawyer in this little town. And uh, he, so, so he didn't invent Smallville, just like he didn't invent Bizarro, but he, Bizarro, he wrote the first Bizarro story for comic books. Bizarro had, had appeared first in the um, Superman Daily newspaper strip. Mm-hmm. So Otto can't, can't actually be said correctly that he you know co-created Bizarro. He didn't. He just wrote that great story where Superman, Superboy meets Bizarro, um, and it's just a classic. You know, thank you. I'm really glad there are people like you that let us know these kind of details because same goes for Leo Dorfman and Alvin Schwartz. These are, you know, Silver Age writers for the listeners who may not know. I know you know. Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of astounded that you know because they just aren't that well known. Well, you know, because I'm friends with people like Mark Wade, and and uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, so they kind of help me out as well. Uh, that, I'm sure Mark. I'm sure Mark does. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, it's you know they didn't have the credits in in those great stories, no. and, and so you don't know until you you know find the historian who goes, yeah, this is what the the contributions were of of these people. We know Kurt Swan's art. We we might know Kurt Schaffenberger's art. Uh, you know, did I say his name right? That's correct. All right, there we go. Uh, <laughs> before we started recording, uh, uh, Bill was like, you know, if you, you know, just so you know, it's Bender, not Binder. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, actually, I did know, but I appreciate that. And I was going to yeah. say, there's going to be some names that we might come across during the interview. But that's the thing; nobody knew these guys. They were they were. Uh, you know, uh, na- nameless, faceless guys that were making incredible contributions to the Superman mythos. It is because this cast of characters were allowed to develop in their own stories that Superman's, um, you know, mythos, I think, stands above everyone else's. It's, you know, you know, Daredevil's Foggy Nelson and Karen Page because of maybe the Netflix thing. And even if you're a hardcore fan, but there are so many great heroes that they don't have the Greek chorus if that's the well, right I description, mean, there's, that no Karen, there's, there's no Karen Page comic, and there's no right. Foggy Nelson comic, <laughs> but there was a Jimmy Olsen comic, and there's this uh, Lois Lane comic book. You bet, man. Yeah. And, and we, yeah, you know, so, uh, but, you know, I think that's the important thing. It's interesting, though, on the, um, in the comics now, I think they're stating that Supergirl was created by Siegel and Schuster. And um, I think it's a little bit uh, misleading. Um, it's true. She's based on the myth of Krypton, and 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 you'd have to say that they were co-creators. But Otto wrote the first story of Supergirl, named her, named Argo City. Um, you know all these things. Wow. Uh, you know he he is definitely one of the co-creators of Supergirl, and he's not being credited. Um, not that his you know his heirs are are you know are all upset about it or anything like that because I don't think that's the big issue but in terms of fairness it would be nice. I did hear though that they and I'm going to have to go back and watch that first episode that um the plane that uh, Supergirl oh, yeah. saves uh, is is about to hit the Otto Bender bridge. That is correct. <laughs> 
And so that was a very that was a very nice nod, and of course it made me smile. Absolutely, no, that's fantastic. You know, you're you're right, and it's it's funny too because uh, as we're recording today, the uh, the word came out that um, Superman physically will finally, well, I, you know, we saw his boots in one episode last season, but that they're finally going to cast a Superman character for the first two episodes of season two for Supergirl. And I even uh, was talking to somebody on Twitter, another um, comic book blogger, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm really worried that the fans might want more Superman and it might push Sup- Supergirl out of the picture. And I'm like, no, man. I'm like, she's, first of all, the first season is, I think, proven it, but also because of things like Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen, it's like these characters live and breathe on their own. Yes, Superman, you know, will will be in the stories, but they really were Lois Lane stories. They really were Jimmy Olsen stories, and certainly Supergirl, and and that's the thing. It's like, no, I I really think everything's going to be fine, and the great thing is I think the television producers really get that. And I'm like, I really think you're worried about something that isn't going to exist. I wouldn't swear. Well, I, I'd have to agree with you on that. There you go. You know, I, yeah, mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's something that I think it'll be very interesting to see what they do with that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And what have you thought of uh, as you know, and honestly, I wanted to get to that as far as even the big bigger picture as well, because you've been, you know, this lifelong comic fan. And also, I mean, you know, you're you're an original gangster. You know, it's for, you know, I mean, that's, you know, you, you put out the fanzines and stuff when there was no Internet to connect all of us. You were one of those guys doing the mimeographs and, and sending them out in mail. I mean, I, you know, uh, as a child of the 70s and 80s, I caught the last end of that before, right, before I mean, technology really exploded. We were the people that used to get letters full of co- with coins with sticky tape on them. <laughs> and uh, from, from, you know, maybe 100 people would order it. That's and awesome. And they'd, they'd send you, you know, 20 cents taped to their letter. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I dealt with the, the, did those things when I was a kid because, I'm, you know, I've always been a writer. It's been in my blood. And so the minute I even heard of such a thing as fancy, it's like, oh, I can do one. So I immediately was seized with this urge to publish and did so. And and so I did a bunch of fanzines in the 60s, and that was, of course, the period of time when fandom was really getting rolling, when there were the early conventions, and actually Otto was a part of that. Yes, I wanted to—that's kind of what my lead-in was going to be. Tell me about uh, his appearances at those early 60s conventions. Well, yeah, the first time he, he got involved, he was invited by uh, Richard Lupoff, you know, who wrote the introduction to my book, uh, to the Lupoff's home, uh, because Lupoff had discovered that Otto was working at Space World in New York and made the connection, and they were going to show the uh, Captain Marvel serial, movie serial, and he invited Otto and his wife, and, and Otto met all these comic fans for the first time, and he said, I never had any idea there were people that actually were fans of comics. I figured people just read them and traded them or threw them away, and he became aware of this whole fan phenomenon, and finally, at, at one point, he said, I feel like I'm being doused by fans. I mean, he was, he was a celebrity. That's excellent. Well, that's that's really great. And, you know, I remember, oh, God, and now I'm blanking, Jim Aparo, before he passed away, got to go to San Diego and, uh-huh. and was really touched at how many people really loved his work. Now, it's certainly much bigger uh, stage than the, the cons in the 60s. Now, this first uh, convention that Lupoff had, was it literally at his house and just like a couple dozen yep. people or – 
Yeah, that was. I wouldn't say that was a convention, but what happened is Otto got involved with these fans and ended up going to the first, what is called the first real convention, true convention, which was in 65 in New York City. There was one in 64, but it only lasted a few hours, and it was one afternoon, whereas in 65, it was at a hotel, and they had a full program. It was over multiple days, and it was a real convention. Otto was the guest of honor. That's excellent. That's fantastic. Um I your fanzines. What were some of the names of your fanzines? Uh, well, my first one I, is, was called Superheroes Anonymous. Okay. I mean, I have no idea what it meant or why I thought that was cool. <laughs> I just came up with it. But what I'm best known for was a fanzine I did a little bit later when I finally got my act together somewhat. It was called Sense of Wonder. Okay. Yeah. And I did uh, 12 issues of Sense of Wonder from 1967 to 1972. And by the end, it was a rather professional photo offset magazine and the only problem was I wasn't good enough to be in my own fantasy anymore you know my art wasn't that great and at that time I wasn't the best writer around or anything I've developed somewhat as a writer since then <laughs> did you did you create um comic strips as I know some fanzines did create their own heroes and and absolutely okay in fact my I was known for a character called the immortal corpse awesome <laughs> the immortal corpse was the first dead hero that was dead. And, you know, think about how many dead heroes there are now. And uh, he was, he, he, he literally, and he, his power was that he could control his age. So he could, he could freak people out by grabbing them and then aging in front of them. And they thought they were going crazy. And he, <laughs> That's, I don't know. That's fantastic. But, no, man, I, I'm I'm laughing with joy. I'm not mocking. I swear. It's okay. <laughs> but but the the character became quite popular. Appeared in a number of different fanzines, and then more recently, some people said, "Well, gee, you know, you should try you know marketing that as a TV show or a video game." And I just by the time that happened, there'd been so many others. You know, I I corpse, I this, I that, that uh, you know, it was just an old idea at that point. Ah, well, DC Zone, I Zombie, obviously as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, that, I had the idea back in 64, but hey. I hear you, man. No, it's all right. I, uh, I honestly, I, I truly, I have, I have great respect for the fanzines. I, uh, I used to get similar things that covered boxing back in the day. I'm a big boxing fan. Okay. And then I would get fanzines that were um, initially mimeographed. And then, you know, as, as things got better and stuff, like you say, yeah, no, they, they became more quality magazines and stuff. But, no, I got I got a lot of uh, you know overstuffed uh, business letter envelopes and stuff that would have legal sized paper kind of you know wrapped together. Well, that was that was the internet of the day. Yes, no absolutely, question. it was. Yeah, did you do interviews with um, you know the the publishers and the editors and, and writers as well? Back then, yeah. Um, well, no, I, I, it was a problem for me because. At, you know, and people, A, when I was 13 or 14, the idea of making long-distance calls. My Pretty parents expensive. Never, my parents would never have countenanced it. <laughs> they would have just said, forget it, because it was expensive. Yes, And it then was. later, um, what happened was I we moved um, to Idaho, so I was in the middle of nowhere, so I couldn't really get to conventions. And so I've only, I only went to one big convention, which is the 1973 New York Con. I went there after I graduated from high school or from college, and that's the only big con I ever went to. Who would you see at that con? That's fantastic. Oh, well, uh, Harvey Kurtzman was there. Outstanding. And uh, um, uh, William Gaines. Wow. Uh, Steranko. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Bob Kane gave a speech where the room, by the end, the room was empty. Why is that? <laughs> what happened? 
Oh, he's just he was a very very full of himself. <laughs> and you, and after you've heard someone brag about how great they are, you know, for a while, at first you're indulgent. Because you figure, well, he created Batman. But after a while, it's just like, oh, geez, this guy's a real jerk. That's awesome. <laughs> and so the room emptied. And uh, But I did see other people I mean, other people there, of course, who, who were at the convention. I, my, uh, Jim Warren I talked to. In fact, That's I even, inter- even interviewed for a job at Creepy and Eerie at that oh, point. Oh, wow. And um, Gil Kane, I met in an elevator. Von Baudet. Wow. So, yeah, it was, it was a, a comic bat fan and was going great guns in 1973. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Oh, you know, again, that's kind of when I got into it, uh, the 20 cent per issue era. That's that right, was well, that's that's a real popular era right now. The Bronze Age is a is big deal right now. You know, and I always feel getting back to Superman kind of neglected. And it was like I, I loved it man, when he was working for WGBS and Steve yeah. Lombard was was pulling pranks on him. And, you know, well, your golden age is what? What age you were when you were twelve? This is true. This is a hundred percent right. You're, you are right. <laughs> now you mentioned Harvey Kurtzman, and I, I said this before mm-hmm. recording. You're nominated for an Eisner for your Harvey Kurtzman book. Yes, I'm very happy about that. Of course. Yeah, I want you know, like I said before, before the uh, San Diego convention happens, I do want you back because I'd love to talk more about uh, about the Kurtzman book in full. Uh, well, it was an amazing project. I'd be very happy to come back. Um, it would take. A, it would be good to dedicate a whole show to it, or a, lo- a great part of a show, rather than try to f- talk about him now. That's what I figured. Yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to overtax you either. And you know, we just met, so I want you. Know, I don't want to ingratiate myself on you too much. Shut up, kid. It's, We're it's, done talking. <laughs> it's. It's. A, it, no. It's okay. I'd be. I'm happy to be. I'm just really glad to be able to talk about Otto. And uh, be able to talk about the book, and because you know he's such a wonderful, uh, warm man who really had some tough breaks later in his life with the death of his daughter, but he he survived them, and he um, uh, he's just uh, everybody who knew him loved Otto. That's cool, and I, I really think it comes through in the book. And again, I just love the amount of research you were able to do and put into this. And also, this is a second edition. Of this book, you, re- you originally released it in two thousand three, right? Um, I, when I was first got back into comic fandom in the early nineties, after being away for a while, I started wanting to write, but I just really didn't have any credentials. So I started self-publishing. So I did my book, The Golden Age of Comic Fandom. I self-published that, which was the first book-length history of fandom. Mm -hmm. And then um, after I did several books on the history of fandom, I decided that I wanted to branch out a little bit. And uh, Roy Thomas and I were talking about how great it would be if there was a book on Otto Bender, because Roy knew Otto. And so I said, well, gee, maybe that'd be a project I could do. And so I self-published the first edition. And then recently I was moaning on Facebook about, gee, I'd sure like to do another edition of this. There were only a 1,000 copies printed of the original. And a publisher, North Atlantic Books, a representative, got in touch with me from that uh, little rant on Facebook. And thus we have a book. That's excellent. I'm really glad that happened. And, you know, available at Amazon, uh, you know, as we're recording, the book drops this week. Right. So uh, it's supposed to be tomorrow is the publication date. Yes. So that the seventh, June seventh, is is the day that it, it appeared, and, right. uh, and or that it debuted. So if you're listening after that, it's already out there. And go to Amazon and check uh, North Atlantic Books. North Atlantic Books, and this book is almost a hundred pages longer than the first edition. That's excellent. Yeah, and I also again. I was reading the difference, uh, a lot of supplemental material in terms of personal papers and correspondence, more, more of that stuff in the book, and also a lot more photographs as well. 
Exactly. It's it's just a better book. It, it, all the um, errors that people pointed out to me have been fixed. Um, it's just uh, I'm a you know I'm a little better writer now, so I was able to kind of smooth it out a little bit and make it better. I'm very happy with the way it turned out. So, and again, we'll talk again if if you're able. I'd love to talk about Kurtzman, but what other uh, figures would you like to do uh, full biographies of? Well, you know, um, it takes three things to do that. A, it has to be somebody that you really want to spend two years of your life doing and thinking about. Understood. B, it takes access to... um, the material, uh, you, you know, I don't want to work on a book and just regurgitate everything that's been written. I, I want to get access to things that haven't been known, to family photographs and uh, different things like that. And that's not always possible, of course. And then third, you have to, it has to be a someone who's uh, could really be well enough known to support a book and to, for a publisher to be interested in publishing a book on someone because they figured they could sell enough copies. So it's tricky figuring out you know how many how many people are in comic books are there that really would make all those cuts <laughs> and so but you know obviously you know I, I would you know there could be a book on Frank Frazetta there could be a, sure. a book on Robert Crumb there could be in comics there's certainly you know but there've been biographies of Wally Wood and yes. uh, he'd be he'd be a great subject but there's already a book on him true and uh, so I, right now um, I have some things in the works, but I don't have anything I can talk about. I have one, I had just finished a book that's a, a major person in the history of comics, so I have to tease you with that. I can't tell you who it is. Okay. But it's, I turned it all in. It's going to be a big uh, coffee paper, table book and biography that's going to come out early next year. Excellent. Well, that's an excuse to have you back, and uh, we'll talk about that when, when that time comes. Now, I, I kind of scratched the surface of this, but I'm really interested in your opinion of uh, today's uh, comic fandom and also uh, comic fan press. And, 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 you know, it's okay. I'm a big boy. I can take it. You know, and I and I don't feel I'm the sole representative of 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 that uh, group of people as well. But yeah, what do you? I mean, because really, I I talked to Walt Simonson at a Marvel telephone press conference when he and Brian Bendis were just about to start an arc of the Avengers, and we talked about story and what was going on specifically in their story. But I'm like, Walter, what do you think of this almost 24-hour news cycle devoted to comics? And he, mm-hmm. you know, so now I'm asking you that question. Well, you know, I think you're, you might be asking the wrong guy, because um, honestly, I can't keep up with all that, uh, um, all the websites and the material that's coming out. Um, I see this this uh, cycle, and it's like the media we see everywhere. Um, everything is this, you know, um, one minute wonder, um, the next day something else, and uh, uh, the short attention span theater of it all, and. Uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I just uh, kind of am agog, and I think that has sort of invaded the comic book area too. But I also think we just have to realize that you know that that's what's happening now, and it, there are reasons why it's happening. And let's just uh, see if we can make the best of it, because uh, you know uh, things. To, if you're not changing, you're not going anywhere. And I think it's important to have change. So. Okay. Yeah, no, and I I agree with that. I kind of feel like I straddle both eras because I was this kid as, you know, you were going to the 73 Supercon and stuff like that in New York, and I, uh, you know, now I'm part of this, you know, kind of blogosphere. I I mostly podcast, but I, you know, and I I try to do, you know, kind of in-depth interviews like what we're doing to really get legitimate answers. But, you know, no, it's it's fun, and also, yeah, I, I... I, and there are days that I think it's great, and then there are days like uh, in the last couple of weeks. I'm sure 
uh, through the transom, you at least heard about all the Captain America, Hail Hydra. Uh, oh, yeah. F- Fuhrer, any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, you know, I, my thought on that is that, that this, too, will change. There you go. Exactly. And so let's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a nine days wonder or however long this happens. And uh, just like the death of Superman in the 90s, I mean, come on, everybody was so concerned about Superman. What will happen to him? Will he come back? <laughs> of course he'll come back, you know. And the same way with Captain America, you know, the, this is just what's happening now. And it's a way of coming up with a new take on the character um, and some drawing some interest to the character. I wouldn't think the character would need much new interest given the popularity of the movies. But uh, I'm not an executive at Marvel. <laughs> sure, sure. Were there were there those kinds of outrages back in the '60s, like how dare Bouncing Boy get booted out of the Legion or something? I mean, you know, were there were there those <laughs> kinds of stories in in fanzines of your era? Well, of course, there was commentary on sure. on the comics that were coming out, and definitely there were people that felt that, um, for example, uh, when um, the Flash came back, you know, it wasn't the original Flash; it was right. a new Flash. And so I think that there are people that probably felt like, well, geez, this why don't we bring, why do we have to reinvent the Flash? Why don't we just bring back Jay Garrick, the Flash? That would that that would be just fine. Um, but you know, there was something great about the reinvention of the Flash, oh, yeah. and. And what was so great about it was he became the Flash because he was reading a Flash comic book when he got hit by lightning. <laughs> I mean, how that is just so clever. I just love that. Very meta. Yeah, absolutely, uh, man. That's excellent. What that's you, in the comic book. It's not in the TV show, I'm sure. Right, unfortunately. Well, and what do you think of uh, the current TV shows and the movies and everything? Well, I, I like a lot of them. Um, I, I, I like the first season of uh, Arrow a lot. When it became a situation where he was getting kicked pillar to post by about five different women, I started to feel like, well, geez, you know, this is what this is is team Green Arrow for one thing. It's not Green Arrow anymore. And secondly, I thought Green Arrow could, you know, was a little tougher character than this, but he ended up be getting kicked around an awful lot and by mostly by you know bouncing from his various female sub characters in there. And uh, it doesn't matter if it would be. It's not a matter of female. It's just that he just wasn't as in control of his situation as as he seemed for a while there. And uh, so I kind of lost a little interest. I felt like they took the character and made him weak. Um, but um, you know, other shows I really like, and I thought the I think the Supergirl show is very good. I think that uh, uh, you know. Uh, well, the Greg Berlanti shows, you know, Flash is, of course, probably the most popular. And, I mean, it's it's just a, it's a terrific show. And it got off to a wonderful start. And it has an excellent uh, star. Um, you know, he's a little young to be a police scientist. But, hey, you know, um, maybe maybe he just looks so young because I'm so old, you know. Well, I, I kind of felt the same way. I'm like, God, these kids all look like they're barely out of college, if that. How they, well, go, they look like they're going into college. For, they they looked awfully young. They were cast very young. <laughs> but see, the benefit of that is that if the show lasts, they can get older and and still be youngish and everything. And whereas sometimes you can cast somebody like I think when they cast Daniel Craig as James Bond, he was in his forties. True. So you know, if you're if a guy's going to play a character over a period of time, maybe it's better to cast on the young side. Well, and it's getting interesting now. And I've talked about this with some of the the executives in Marvel about how, you know, Robert Downey is in his early 50s now, looks great and is yep. in his amazing shape. But, you know, are you going to, I mean, it was, I use the uh, I use the James Bond and the Star Trek examples where, mm-hmm. you know, we got to see Shatner and Nimoy play the, play the roles through their 70s. 
Right. You know, and that's cool. But, you know, are we going to be able to do that? And will will that work? And also, how would that impact the comics? Because, you know, you've got Tony Stark potentially at 60 years old being Iron Man. Well, you know, there's different ways they can solve it, but there could certainly be a new actor playing Iron Man someday. Absolutely. Well, or you know that, or again, do you do you introduce legacy? I mean, like like Jay Garrick and Barry Allen, does there become a right. new hero? You know, that could very easily happen too. That he could become more of a um, a guru to the new Iron Man. Absolutely. Or or maybe he would do it to Rhodey. I don't know. But but whatever the case, um, there's all kinds of ways that you can handle that. But I think when you're casting a television show on the CW, you it has a very young viewership. You absolutely. naturally want to you want to cast young. Oh no, absolutely no. And you know I love seeing and I never know how to say Grant is it Grant Gustin or whatever. I know his first name's. Grant. I think that's right. But when you see him and he's just in the outfit and the mask is you know hanging from his neck the way that we've seen it a million times in the comics. It blows my mind, and you're the kind of guy that I could talk to and say, we remember when, you know, Marvel was doing those 70s movies, and yeah, they, they sucked, but it was like, oh. who cared? It was a Captain America movie. It was a Doctor Strange movie. We were right. thrilled, you know? Well, it was very exciting, and I mean, of course, the Hulk uh, yes. series um, was probably responsible for keeping the Hulk going and for creating a tremendous amount of added interest in the, in the Hulk, I think. No question. Uh, so yeah, no, you know we we well hey the Superman show in the fifties, I mean in the late fifties when I you know when I was a little kid in the, well late early sixties when they were showing repeats I'd watch that and it was like magic it was like lightning in a bottle absolutely no you're right so so you know uh, at at the time but I don't know what's going to really thrill people what, what's going to be new in the future that's going to thrill people when they can do everything now. <laughs> Yeah, but do you, you know, it's funny because some people are like, this is great, but it's going to end and we should all enjoy ourselves. But maybe in about 10 years, people are going to get sick of superheroes. I disagree because they use the Western as an example. And I'm like, hey, guys, the Western lasted literally from Edison creating movies to, you know, the 70s where we had nonstop Westerns. And then within 10 years, Silverado came out and Westerns were back. So I kind of think... We are bomb-proof as far as movies or TVs goes. There might be a reduction, but I kind of right. think that the genre is here to stay as far as superheroes goes. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think what will happen is it will become like anything else. There will be good ones and bad ones. Yeah. Some will be flops and be terrible. Others will be great, and people will learn to discriminate um, just as they discriminate between um, – a good detective movie or a bad detective movie or whatever. But I think that there's the, the mythological and the colorful aspects to the superhero movies is something that uh, is is very attractive to people, all kinds of people. And we always knew it when we were into comics. We always thought, this stuff is so cool. If only people really understood. And now that they see it, they do respond to it. Which I think explains some of the outcry of this Captain America Hail Hydra thing. A lot of us, you know, being you know, used to uh, these kind of twists in comic books. We're cool. But it, it amazes me how many bloggers are really pouring their heart into, oh, my God, you've destroyed this character. It's over. It's all over. Well, I hate to bring up Daniel Craig again, but when they cast him, there were there were practically riots in the streets. It's just <laughs> The level of of insanity, um, you know, it's hard to even imagine how excited people get over this stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, um, 
but then again, um, you know, there's so much noise on the internet. You you can't pay attention. You have to just pick the parts of it that you really want to pay attention to. So you can kind of tune out a lot of it. Agreed. And I try to do that on Word Balloon when I when I have no lie guests on like yourself because. Also, I don't want people to think uh, another thing that drives me nuts is they think all the, a lot of this stuff is so brand new. But you, as you point out, uh, we had uh, television uh, with the syndicated Superman show. And by the way, in the way that they want, oh, why don't they do commercials for comic books? I know you know it at the very end of every Superman episode. You got the narrator going, Superman appears monthly. In action and Superman comic books. Exactly. <laughs> so, and that's because they own the show. Oh yeah, and uh, uh, you know the, the you know there's but you know the, there's no question now is a great time to be a fan of of uh, these movies because they're just I mean they, the, the new Civil War just blew my mind and it was really a terrific movie. Oh yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it, it just uh, you know, uh, to, to think, for me, being an older guy, to watch this, it's like I never dreamed in a million years we'd be able to have, you know, giant man lumbering around an airport <laughs> or something like that. I mean, I just, I laughed out. When I saw that, I was just so thrilled. I just couldn't believe it. Absolutely. Uh, and that that many different heroes performing their powers against each other. Yeah. Right. I, no, but I, my, you know, really, man, you're only like a decade and a half or so ahead of me. <laughs> And I felt the same way. It's like, oh my God! And thank God we live to see all this happen. It's oh great. yeah, it's a great, it's a great time for that. I mean, God. No, and and also, well, that's why when the younger people are like meh, and you know, like eh, it was okay, and it's like, oh, you guys have no idea the crap we were like. Yay! That that superhero uh, roast, the celebrity roast from the seventies. Even that crap. We're like, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it is, it is great. And, you know, on the other hand, those are some great comics that were published back then and it, I mean to be a fan back when Frank Miller first got into comics and was doing Daredevil for the first time and to see that talent flower like it did and to see him come along and 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 do and Alan Moore to get into comics and people like that in the 80s is just a you know there's just something so exciting about seeing that kind of talent just find itself and and create great comic books well and again you go a few dec- decades earlier and that's exactly the kind of description you make for Otto Bender uh, well, yeah, yeah, and Otto, uh, Otto really had the magic touch when it came to how to write these stories, and he he did so many of them, and he knew what he was doing from start to finish, and you know it's it's good to give credit where it's due, and um, he hasn't always gotten the recognition that he probably deserves, and so I'm hoping that this book will really touch a nerve with people that they'll recommend it to their friends, they'll talk about it on Facebook, and and really uh, the advance orders, I I mean I don't have specific numbers, but the publisher told me they went back to press before they even the book even came out. Fantastic. That's so great. We're, we're, it sounds like there's going to be a real uh, um, good reception for this book. That's excellent. I'm happy to help uh, pass the word on to the, the Word Balloon audience and let them know uh, that, no, this is a great book and really uh, a, a very important game-changing creator that should not be forgotten. And luckily, we've got your book, Otto Binder, The Life and Work of a Comic Book and Science Fiction Visionary from uh, Bill Shelley. It is out this week. Look for it. Look for it at your comic stores. I bet uh, a lot of them are ordering it as well as regular bookstores, and you can find it online at Amazon. And uh, good luck with the uh, nomination for Harvey Kurtzman, the man who created uh, Mad and revolutionized humor in America. 
Uh, that Another is, one of those long titles, yeah. yeah. Well, I luckily, and you see, I got the cover in front of me now, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thanks for having me on, John. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, Bill. Seriously, and and I, I will uh, I will be uh, stalking you so that you'll come back before the Eisners and we can talk about Kurtzman. That would be great. Let's do that. Okay, that's the plan. Uh, let's have Bill back in a couple weeks to talk about Harvey Kurtzman, the man who created Mad and revolutionized humor in America. And this is one hell of a book. My God, it is with, uh, let's see, just text alone? I'm, I'm looking at where it goes here. About uh, just uh, under 580 pages, 579 so uh, I've got my uh, work cut out for me. I just got done reading. Oh, man, I got more reading to do. More homework than college, I swear to God. But it is worth it because uh, then we have an informed conversation when we have our guests on Word Balloon like today. Uh, great talking to Brad. Great talking to Bill. And I hope you enjoy today's presentation of Word Balloon. Brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Again, if you uh, enjoyed what you heard today and uh, my library of over uh, 600 uh, uh, episodes of Word Balloon, uh, well into seven or 800 hours. I haven't really counted the hours of Word Balloon because, as you know, a lot of, of episodes uh, are two and three hours uh, long. So uh, when you think about it, there's a lot of content here at WordBalloon.com. And uh, I think it's unique content, and I think it's uh, worth something. And I, and I appreciate your attention. But if you can help and if you enjoy what you hear uh, and want to help me out via Patreon, uh, that would be terrific. WordBalloon.com, uh, there's a link to the Patreon page there. And uh, if you can uh, uh, really manage a dollar or two to help Word Balloon out, I would really appreciate it. It will only help me expand Word Balloon into what I hope eventually will be a, a legitimate, you know, online uh, network of uh, daily content. And, uh, you know, the kind, of, the kind of stuff you could look forward to every day. I have friends who tell me, God, can you do more? I'd love to do more, but I, I need a full-time job right now. If, uh, if I were able to make my money solely through Word Balloon, it wouldn't, I wouldn't need the full-time job. And I could uh, bring you more coverage and uh, go to more conventions and meet more of you and also uh, get more guests and uh, do panels and uh, provide more programming that you get from Word Balloon. So just consider that, if you would. And thank you to the people who do subscribe, the League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by uh, my link at Amazon. If you go through the Amazon portal at wordballoon.com and do your purchasing there, uh, Word Balloon gets a little money that way, too. So I gave you a couple of great uh, recommended reads uh, through these interviews with uh, Brad and Bill, and uh, there's a whole lot more, plus your normal Amazon shopping as well. If you go through the Word Balloon Am- uh, Amazon portal, then Word Balloon gets a kickback. So think about that the next time you're shopping for Amazon. All right, that'll do it. Thanks a lot for listening to Word Balloon. John Suntress saying uh, come back in a couple days because I will have more content for you. Uh, Returning guests and brand new guests and new books and old books and uh, comic book history and what's going on now in comics, all coming to you via Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to give me some feedback, uh, SpeakPipe is now available at Word Balloon. If you uh, look for the tab, it's right at the top of the Word Balloon page. Uh, If you want to give me immediate feedback on this episode or others, uh, you can do that via SpeakPipe. Or you can do it in more traditional ways, like Twitter. Uh, My handle there is at John Word Balloon. You can follow me at Facebook. My name is John Suntress, and um, also under the Word Balloon Network. And then uh, I've got my uh, Tumblr page, Word Balloon Thought Bubbles, and I try to post on Instagram as well under Word Balloon. So uh, lots of ways of getting Word Balloon content. I hope you will join me on the journey via social media and other ways that you get Word Balloon. If you listen through iTunes, uh, do me a favor. Would you rate the show and write a review? I sure would appreciate it. I used to have close to 200 uh, reviews, 
and they knocked out more than half of them. I'm not exactly sure why. So I've slowly been building it back up. I'm just under 100 now, but it would be great to get uh, more of you who listen to Word Balloon to uh, give your opinion, positive or negative. I'm happy to take it at iTunes. So if you listen that way and uh, you would think about writing a review and rating the show, it would certainly help me a lot. So thank you very much. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.